we have some mm-hmm. data um, that is actually sobering and mind numbing that says that between 450,000 to 500,000 people get C. diff infection every year in the United States. So it's between the last five minutes of you and I talking to each other, several people somewhere have been diagnosed with C. diff infection. You have to think about that. It, it is the most common in bacterial infection in hospitals. Are you struggling with bloating, gas, constipation, and fatigue, but don't know what's causing these problems? The Gut Health Reset Podcast with Dr. Anne-Marie Barter dives deep into the root causes behind these issues that start in the gut. This podcast will give you the knowledge you need to heal your gut and reset your health. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Gut Health Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and today we are covering a topic we have not covered before. We are covering C. diff infections, and these were generally thought of as only being hospitalized infections. You could only get this in the hospital, but now what we're coming to find out is you can actually come in contact with this pathogen in a lot of different arenas in your life and younger and younger people are actually contracting a C. diff infection. So we're going to talk about some of the signs and symptoms, where you're getting it from, how to protect yourself, and also some new emerging treatments in C. diff. One of those is fecal transplants. And we're going to talk about the pros and cons of fecal transplant, some of the limitations and where it has been studied to know if maybe that's a great avenue for you to potentially explore. So you do not want to miss this episode. It is a very good episode. But before we get into it, I just want to thank you for being here. You guys are just so awesome. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the comments. Thanks for the emails. Thanks for recommending guests. Please keep that up. Uh, We want to know what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear about, so that we can get that out to you. So feel free to do that and recommend guests. Also, we're getting questions about supplements. So we are now trying to put them below in the show notes, as well as the Dr. Anne-Marie Barter website has been launched. So you can find the supplements there, but you can also find all of the podcasts there that we did with the Gut Health Reset podcast, as well as Fearless Health. And we're trying to transcribe those for you. So if you don't feel like listening, you can just read about the episode as well. Dr. Sahil Khanna, a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. His research and clinical interests include epidemiology, outcomes, and emerging therapeutics for C. diff infections, an arena where he has numerous publications and presentations. He is directing the Comprehensive Gastroenterology Interest Group, C. diff clinic, fecal microbiotic transplantation program, and C. diff-related clinical trials at Mayo Clinic. He has over 120 publications and serves as a reviewer on the editorial board of several journals. He has won numerous awards. Dr. Khanna, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us today, and I'm super excited to dig into the amazing research that you have really done uh, with gut infections that are pretty tough and will generally send people to the hospital and aren't 
they don't respond well to antibiotics. So today we're going to dig into a little bit of C. diff and, um, and fecal transplants as glamorous as that sounds, but they work, right? So how in the world did you get into researching these topics? I'm Dr. Barr, thank you for having me over today. The pleasure is all mine. You could wake me up at 2 a.m. and talk about this and I'll be super excited. Um, <laughs> this is uh, my jam and my wife tells me you like bacteria more than you like me sometimes. Yeah, it may be true, but um, um, I did get into research. I think a lot of times in our lives as physicians, as you also know, that and healthcare providers, research and all of those opportunities come with mentorship. So I got into C. diff research um, after I joined residency here at Mayo Clinic. And it came to me from my mentor who had a project looking at the epidemiology and outcomes of C. diff infection in a population-based cohort in Olmsted County here in Minnesota. Prior to that, during medical school, I did like bacteria, I did like microbiology as a subject. This was a natural fit for me. Um, more importantly, Dr. Dalpati, who's been my colleague and mentor for over uh, 13 years now, and we still worked together and we write papers together. You may have seen that a lot of work that we've done, we do it together. He's the one who held my hand and kind of guided me through the initial work. Um, that's how I got into it. I did, I did the first project and I fell in love with the outcomes and what we saw in that project. And also I learned with my very first study that this is a very, very big and unmet issue uh, that is affecting the population. So when we did our first study, there was a notion that C. diff infection affects the hospitalized elderly people who are sick and who have received antibiotics. That's what was going on in the early 1980s, late 1980s. But a lot of us as clinicians had seen an observation that C. diff is not only affecting the old people or elderly who are in the hospital, but every now and then you'd see somebody in your outpatient practice with C. diff infection. So what we found for, amongst, for one of the first studies in the United States was that about 40%, 4-0, of all C. diff was affecting people outside the hospital. So not a condition that we were thinking before that. We also figured out that those people were about on an average 20 years younger than people who were in the hospital getting C. diff infection. And on top of all of that, sometimes you would get C. diff outside the hospital in a younger person who had not received even received antibiotics. So about one in five people who came to our clinics with C. diff infection had not received antibiotics. So whole different disease entity, the same bacterium, which about a two or three decades ago was infecting only people in the hospital. Now we were seeing that's migrating outside the hospital into the community from older people to younger people and from traditional risk factors to newer risk factors. That's always a cause for concern. So we went on a crusade over the last decade now trying to understand why this is happening, risk factors, how do we optimally diagnose this? How do we test this? And then how do we optimally treat patients with C. diff infection? So we've gone through a whirlwind of research looking at epidemiology, outcomes, new risk factors, testing strategies, um, looking at newer kind of antibiotic treatments, how do those affect people who have this dreaded infection? And then also looking at how do you stop the cycle? So we've, that's where we've started doing a lot of this research and that's where we are at and moving moving on from doing epidemiological studies to microbiome-based therapies or fecal transplants. It's, it's, it's been a journey and let's talk about that today. Yeah, I like that. So, uh, you know, we have a wide variety 
of different subsets of people. So how are they presenting differently into practices? What are you noticing from a young person that has a C. diff infection to somebody that um, is a little bit older and is currently hospitalized that contracts a C. diff infection? Yeah, so these are different case entities, but even let's take a step back and let's, uh, when we talk about young people, old people, it's always a good idea for us to know how many people are actually getting this in, in the United States. We have some mm-hmm. data um, that is actually sobering and mind numbing that says that between 450,000 to 500,000 people get C. diff infection every year in the United States. So it's between the last five minutes of you and I talking to each other, several people somewhere have been diagnosed with C. diff infection. You have to think about that. It, it is the most common in bacterial infection in hospitals. COVID is now the most common viral infection, but C. diff is now C. diff has been the most common bacterial infection in hospitals, single bacterium that causes all these hospital uh, infections. Now, with that background to answer your question, um, people who uh, are in the hospital and who get C. diff infection are on an average usually over the age of 65, usually. Over 95% of them have received antibiotics for something. And the majority of them have some other comorbid condition that's, that they were in the hospital for and developed C. diff after that. Now, hospitals have improved. We've seen that the incidence of C. diff in the hospitals has stabilized and in the last year actually gone down. Guess why? We're washing hands better. <laughs> that's funny. That is funny, yeah. but true. <laughs> funny and true. I'm absolutely true. We're washing hands better. Isolation's better. Everybody knows about infection control because we now have a much more contagious illness that's out there everywhere. So C. diff in the hospital has stabilized a little bit. When you compare that to a person who is in the outpatient setting, about 45 years on an average age, about 20 years younger than the hospitalized person, about one in five not received antibiotics, but they have other risk factors like they may be on an acid-reducing therapy like a proton pump inhibitor or meprazole or pantoprazole-like medications. They may have an underlying illness like inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. Those patients get C. diff infection. And then some of our chronic illnesses, as we've seen over the years, are getting more from older people to younger people. We're seeing younger people with cancers. We're seeing younger people on chemotherapy. So all those risk factors do affect um, our outpatients. One thing that we see differently is that the hospital-acquired population ends up being more severe illness than the community-acquired population. We also see that hospital-acquired population ends up being more fulminant illness, meaning C. diff leading to an ICU admission or surgery, God forbid, that can also happen. And then finally, we do see that a subset of people who acquired C. diff in the outpatient setting in the community end up being hospitalized eventually for it. It's a subset. Those are the older people or who have comorbidities. They end up getting hospitalized for it. But there is a difference. The one thing that I would say, like when you take all of it together, what can a person or a physician or a clinician take out from that? That if you are an outpatient and you are developing or have developed chronic unexplained diarrhea, chronic meaning lasting more than a few weeks, it's not explained, and you may not have received antibiotics, still C. diff infection should be considered even in the outpatient population, which we were not considering more than two decades ago or a decade ago. We didn't think about that. But now in today's world, 
if you're a patient and you have diarrhea and it's you don't have an explanation for that, talk to your doctor and say, hey, could this be C. diff infection, even if I've not been exposed to antibiotics, because it can happen. And it's important for it to be diagnosed and tested and treated well, unlike other causes of bacterial diarrhea in the outpatient setting. So let's say somebody gets food poisoning or E. coli or Campylobacter or norovirus. Treatment for that is supportive. People could get hospitalized, but you don't need a specific treatment for that. And it goes away in most people. C. diff infection in most people, once you get it, does not go away on its own. It's not a self-limited infection that goes away on its own. And it's got a SAG-off recurrence system that I'm sure we'll talk about today. Those are the big differences, but people should be aware of this condition, not only because it leads to bad outcomes, but also you could get hospitalized for it. And God forbid, there are deaths that are associated with C. diff infection. Yeah, Studies have shown that roughly serious. about 29,000 people may die of C. diff or its complications every year just in the United States. Mm -hmm. And do you believe that there is any possible evidence that it could potentially be a trigger for inflammatory bowel, or do you think that's related in any way, shape, or form? It's a very good question. Sometimes we don't know the chicken and the egg story in this situation. Although we all have seen, and we've seen in our practice too, some people who get diagnosed with multiple recurrent C. difficile infection, and you end up doing a colonoscopy on them to treat C. diff, and you find de novo inflammatory bowel disease wasn't there before or was not diagnosed. One thing that we know for sure is that if you have underlying inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease affecting the large intestine, you are at a high risk of getting C. diff infection, even without antibiotic exposure. Now, take it the other way around. What if you develop C. diff infection? Does that increase your risk of inflammatory bowel disease? We don't know that for sure, but it needs to be looked for, especially if you have C. diff infection and conventional treatments are not making you better. What's the science behind it? We think, we don't know for sure, we think that maybe this was a person who was genetically programmed to have, could have developed inflammatory bowel disease. And then a second that had happened, you got antibiotics, your microbiome changed, we know that the microbiome or the gut bacteria or the useful bacteria that live in the large intestine, they have properties to be in what we call as an anti-inflammatory state. They don't let inflammation to happen. Your microbiome changed. You had the genetic predisposition to form or develop ulcerative colitis and a second it happened and you developed C. diff infection and that predisposed you to developing that colitis that you were not going to develop otherwise. So there, it's rare. It may happen, but it's not that everybody who has C. diff infections should start wondering about, do I have ulcerative colitis or not? I think it's a subset, and it's those people in whom you think that the uh, C. diff infection is not getting better just with antibiotics for C. diff. Mm -hmm. The number one question I feel like I get asked uh, when there's any questions about major pathogens is, where did I get this? So when we're looking at the younger population, when we're looking at, oh, suddenly we're presenting with inflammatory bowel, there might be a, a C. diff component. Where, where are we getting C. diff? Back in the day, until about 25, 30 years ago, we thought that this only lives in the confinements of healthcare facilities, um, hospitals, doctor's offices, emergency rooms, dialysis centers, kind of just lives there. And then if you get it, it lives in your bathroom. Once you get rid of it, it doesn't live in your bathroom anymore. More recent studies have shown that this bacterium is also becoming ubiquitous. 
C. diff is a spore former, so it can stay on surfaces for a while. So people could pick it up from public bathrooms, could pick it up from grocery stores, could pick it up from food, could pick it up. Uh, we've seen that it's been cultured from walls of meat processing plants. So it's kind of out there in your environment everywhere. The one difference between C. diff, which is a spore former, compared to some of the other bacteria is that the alcohol hand rubs that we use may not be a very effective killer for C. diff spores compared to hand washing with soap and water. So traditional teaching in hospitals is that if you have an outbreak of C. diff in your hospital, you should think about using soap and water for hand washing compared to alcohol hand rubs. And I teach all of my residents and fellows is that if you're taking care of the C. diff patient after you're done taking care of that, yes, you've got a hand sanitizer, use that right away because your sink may not be right next to every patient room in the hospital. But then after that, find the sink and wash your hands with soap and water because we think that the mechanical action of washing your hands with soap and water and soap in itself is a much better way of getting rid of C. diff spores. But it's, it's out there, it's everywhere. Um, it's part of our environment. And is the only major symptom that you're going to see in the younger generation has has been diarrhea in your experience, or are you seeing other symptoms associated with C. diff? Diarrhea is the predominant symptom that we see associated with C. diff. The other symptoms that we see more commonly are abdominal pain with the diarrhea that people get. And this is not your usual diarrhea. This is not that I had food at the Minnesota State Fair, got picked up something, got diarrhea for a couple of days, and <laughs> it went away. This is different. This is debilitating abdominal pain causing cramping, people feeling like they've pooped their guts out kind of diarrhea. So this is really, really bad diarrhea. In a lot of people, we see abdominal pain. We see other systemic symptoms. People are not able to absorb the nutrients as well or have are in a catabolic state where they just keep having diarrhea and lose weight. So weight loss is a, lot, is a symptom that we see quite a bit too. And then a subset of people, small number of people, also end up developing upper gut symptoms. Now, C. diff is a bacteria that only lives in the large intestine. For the most part, we know that. It's not a stomach or food pipe or esophagus bacteria, but as a result of inflammation in the intestine, you end up seeing uh, people developing nausea, vomiting, inability to tolerate oral intake. We see that quite a bit. Every now and then you'd see somebody develop slow stomach transiently because of that too. So this is what most people get. And then there's a small subset of people, very small, not everybody, very small subset of people who end up being in the intensive care unit where the colon tissue tends to die, becomes big called megacolon, um, and people end up being in septus or septic shock because of serious infection. That population is very, very small, but it's out there, it's real. The one last thing that I also see is that C. diff is a gift, unfortunately, it keeps on giving. So you get it once, it keeps coming back. And I have seen some people who've developed anxiety um, disorder after they had C. diff infection just because of the anxiety of where's the next bathroom? My life results are on the bathroom. I'm homebound. I can't leave. I'm locked down. I'm quarantined. So we've seen people who've been quarantining themselves for the fear of infection, giving infection to others way before people were quarantining them for, for, for COVID. My CDF patients have been practicing quarantine for much longer before people practiced quarantine for COVID. Um, it's a true disorder, a systemic disorder, not only diarrhea, but leading from diarrhea, GI symptoms, weight loss, and unfortunately anxiety, which I think is a very debilitating aspect um, of symptoms that happens to people. And just 
just to kind of clarify, because I don't know if everybody knows what megacolon is out there. I think that that's pretty self-explanatory, but can you break that down for somebody that might not have a medical background? Thank you. Um, uh, thanks for asking that. Um, when you have an infection, when somebody has an infection of the large intestine, namely C. diff, majority of people would be in the outpatient setting who got in the outpatient setting, they take the medicine, it resolves. Even in the hospital, you get some severity. If you get a white count response, you may get a kidney, dis kidney uh, injury response, it resolves. In a small, small fraction of people, less than 1% in the hospital, who may get a disease that's very severe, the gut's producing a lot of toxin, and then the large intestine or the colon, the inner lining tends to die because it's shedding a lot of cells. And the toxin is what we call a cytotoxic, it kills more cells. When that happens, the colon wall in itself starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when the colon wall becomes bigger, you call it megacolon. The colon, and it's like a balloon that is blowing up with air, is how I would think about it. And when you, and if you put too much air, then the wall can handle. Sometimes it's a risk of causing a hole or a perforation, which is one of the most deadliest complications that we see in people with C. diff infection. It doesn't happen to most people happens to a very small subset. And if you diagnose the disease early, if you treat it early with guideline-directed therapy, then this complication can potentially be avoided. And do you think, you know, the severity of symptoms? So you have some folks that are very, very severe with C. diff infections or very close to death, they're hospitalized. And then you have people that maybe have less in the way of symptoms. Do, do you believe that the microbiome or the good bacteria has any impact on how severe somebody experiences a C. diff infection? I think that's a very good question, Dr. Bader. The And we don't know the answer to that, but I'll give you my speculations on how I think about it. We do think that the more severe an infection they have, the worse your underlying microbiome is. What we don't know is that if you had a worse underlying microbiome, that led to the severity of the infection, or the severe infection also killed the good bacteria and competed with them. What we do know is that about 80 odd percent, roughly give or take, will not develop severe infection. So people should not be scared about it for the mass, most part. But about 15 to 20 percent will develop severe infection, and less than 1 percent will get fulminant infection. We do know that there are some predictors of these severe infection episodes. Some of them um, include the sicker you are otherwise. So people have comorbid conditions like heart disease or other GI diseases or cancer or chemotherapy or immunocompromised. They are older. They are more likely to get the severe infection. We also know that these people underlying have a disrupted or dysbiotic microbiome. When I say disrupted or dysbiotic microbiome, meaning small numbers than other people and lower variety than other people. So Conceivably, indirectly, the worse your microbiome is, you're more likely to get uh, a worse outcome from these infections. In terms of severity, but more than the severity, the other debilitating aspect of C. difficile is the recurrences that happen. And I think that's where we know more. The more disrupted your microbiome is, the more recurrences that you're getting. So even if somebody doesn't ends up not being in the hospital, even that cycle of recurrences that keep happening is actually more debilitating more anxiety provoking, more quality of life uh, than any other infections that people get. To speculate a little more, mm -hmm. have you noticed uh, in your research any 
good bacteria that tends to be protective specifically by name, like the bifido family, the lactobacillus, acromantia, anything that has been very protective. So the bacteroides are very protective um, against, uh, against this infection. We have seen that so there's, there's those family of the bacteria that you've mentioned to the bacteroides, those are protective, but we've also seen that it's not just a one family of bacteria that protects you. It's the number of different kinds. It's the whole colony of bacteria that live inside. It's how they interact with each other because when you've got a good colony of good bacteria, I kind of try to, in my mind, compare it to what we call as a good gut garden. So if you've got a good, highly lush green gut garden, maybe even multiple types of grass that you're trying to grow in there, that's not going to allow your weed or C. diff or the weed plants to start growing in your backyard. That's how I kind of usually think about, think about it. What we do know is that if you, if you have a lush green garden of gut bacteria with multiple different kinds of bacteria, just replenishing or replacing one of one of a kind of them is not going to be good enough to get rid of C. diff infection. So let's say if somebody has C. diff and say, can I just take a probiotic that has 10 different kinds? That's not going to be helpful. So let's talk numbers. Um, I know you like numbers. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> like numbers. There, in, a, in a healthy person's large intestine, there are a hundred trillion, not million, not billion, a hundred trillion reusable bacteria that probably are living in your intestine and my intestine at any point of time. The other aspect of numbers is that we have about 500 to 2000 different kinds of bacteria that live in our large intestine at any point of time. Everybody's different, but that's the numbers that we're looking for. The majority of these bacteria have not even been identified in medical science at this time. We are not that advanced or developed. Even of the ones that we've identified, the majority of them have not been able to be cultured in a lab. And the majority of them, you don't have enough technology to put them in a capsule by growing them in a lab at this time. We're not there as yet. We hopefully will be there at some point in time. But what nature gives us is not something that we can give to each other without taking help from nature. So if somebody asks me, what's the best probiotic that I can take for recurrency diff infection? I say, healthy person's stool is nature's best probiotic for health with C. diff seal infection. I know I've been talking a lot about recurrent infection. At some point in time during our conversation, I'd like to go into that um, as to why people get it and what can we do about it. So many people struggle with bloating, bowel issues, brain fog, fatigue. You might not even have any gut issues, but did you know the cause of it could be food sensitivities or gut infections? What I have done is I have brought a talented functional nutritionist into my practice. We have very similar training in the nutritional world. And her name is Alexis Appleberry. She is awesome. So you can head on over to our website, Alt ALT, FAM, FAM, Med, MED, and have a consultation with her and schedule so that she can help you get to the root cause of your problems. I want to finish up with the probiotics and then I want to go into that a little bit. So, um, you know, the lactobacillus and the bifido family, very popular in probiotics, for example. And 
we are on the cutting edge of being able to get acromancia mm-hmm. in, you know, starting to, I guess, I don't even know if they're formulating a probiotic, but I know they're, they're getting closer. We can actually have, have acromancia in our system. The, the one thing that I've seen boost acromancia up, and I'm curious if you've seen the same thing, or if you even know, um, has been grapes. The research says pomegranates. I haven't noticed that, but do you have any comments on anything that could help boost some of these probiotics up to your knowledge, other than the fecal transplant, which we're going to get into in just a second. Yeah, fecal transplants different. Fecal transplants for recurrent seal infection or research settings. Everybody should not be doing it on their own. It's not a DIY thing. Most importantly, <laughs> not DIY. Have you seen that first up? <laughs> yes. Um, I have, there's a book that you can buy for DIY fecal transplants. It's not a DIY. Okay, let's start there. Yeah. <laughs> there is a lot of research. And I think in my mind, the best research has been done by uh, Justin Sonberg's group out of Stanford. And they recently wrote a book about the gut microbiome, which I've purchased, not yet quite read, and how diet affects gut microbiome. So what can you and what can I and what can our listeners today do to improve their gut microbiome? It's the age-old stuff that my grandmother told me and your grandmother probably told you. Don't eat junk and eat the vegetables, eat your fruits. Is one fruit or one vegetable better than the other? That's not completely known because diet is hard to study. Although we we do know that if you take a diet that's rich in what we call as prebiotics. So what's a prebiotic? Prebiotic is food for a probiotic. So if we eat a diet that's rich in fiber, if we don't have any other contraindications to eating a high fiber diet, 25 to 30 grams of fiber a day in diet, that is the number that you're trying to strive for. Studies after studies have shown decades of work on diet, more than a decade of work on gut microbiome. What can you and I and the average person who is healthy and wants to stay healthy and wants to promote a good, healthy microbiome, what can you do? Eat a high fiber diet. That's one. Studies have shown that. What else can you do? Drink a lot of non-caffeinated, non-alcoholic beverages, meaning water. Um, drink If you don't have any other contraindications, try to drink 64 ounces of water a day. gives you good gut health. Try to exercise. Studies have shown, studies after studies, exercise improves gut microbiome. What else can you do? Stop smoking if you're smoking. You've shown that smoking is not good for health overall, but also not for the gut bacteria. And then more importantly, try to avoid unnecessary exposures to things that alter the gut microbiome. Don't go out seeking antibiotics when you may not need an antibiotic. Or if somebody wants to give you an antibiotic to treat an infection, but is not sure, is this a viral sore throat that you get or is this a strep sore throat? But here's an antibiotic just in case it's streptococcus causing the sore throat. That's the antibiotic to question and avoid. Or if you get, God forbid, an infection that truly needs an antibiotic, in that case, please take the antibiotic. Antibiotics are life-saving. Studies have shown over years and years and human lifespan has improved since we have had antibiotics. So antibiotics are life-saving. I'm not against antibiotics. I'm against unnecessary antibiotics. But if somebody tells you, you got an infection, you got a sore in your hand that's infected, needs to be treated with an antibiotic, it may get better with three days, may get better with five days, 
but may get rid of seven days. Here's seven days because more is better. In that case, no, more is not better. Less is better when it comes to antibiotic treatment if less would be effective. So narrow-spectrum antibiotics, short-term antibiotics, as, as long as those are going to be useful to treat the infection that you're treating, all that will continue to help build your gut microbiome. Now, do probiotics build the gut microbiome? I think that's a question that I get asked all the time. I'm sure your listeners ask you all the time. Okay. I think it's tricky. Um, probiotics help some people in certain situations, but do they help build a gut microbiome? They may or they may not. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that once you stop taking those probiotics, those particular strains are no longer in your stool. We know that. Now, when you've taken them, have they helped to build your gut microbiome? I think they could have, but the trouble there is we don't know for sure. But I usually don't recommend people to take just probiotics. I want them to take prebiotics and probiotics together to get your best bang for the buck. Definitely. Um, wow. There's just so much information there. Do you feel like stress depletes the microbiome? Do you feel like that's one of the things that can deplete it from what you've seen from your research and your clinical experience? So I haven't done, to be honest, I haven't done research on the effects of stress on the gut bacteria myself, but I've read a little bit about the gut brain axis and there is a microbial brain axis that we understand. And I think it's probably both of catch 22. If your body's under stressful situations, you probably see a decrease in the gut microbiome. Or the other way around is also true because we have seen that alterations in the gut microbiome are associated with several neuropsychiatric illnesses, such as autism, anxiety, depression, stressful situations. So we see a bi-directional uh, uh, association there. We don't completely understand the cause and effect, but just for as for other illnesses, it's important to try to uh, improve uh, stressful situations as much as, as quickly as you can, uh, easier said than done, meditation, um, psychotherapy, whatever you can do to avoid stressful situations, it probably affects your health overall. Mm -hmm. So now I want to get into the fecal transplant bit and recurrent infections just a little bit. Um, I, I've heard a lot of folks recommending fecal transplants. And I did not know there was a DIY. That is news to me. Um, who can benefit from a, from a fecal transplant and why? It's a very good question. I think in today's world, the way I think about fecal microbiota transplantation or fecal transplants, also known as microbiota restoration therapies, they, uh, in my mind, I think about it in two different categories, broad categories. One category is people who have recurrent or refractory C. difficile infection. In that situation, you can do that part clinically, and it's allowed by the FDA, not approved, but allowed by the FDA to do that clinically for after you talk about risks and benefits, but you can benefit people with recurrent C. difficile infection. So we'll talk about those. And there's another big group of fecal microbiome transplantation or microbiome-based therapies for other illnesses. And if you go to clinicaltrials.gov today, you'll see more than 400 different studies for fecal microbiome transplantation. And a lot of them are for C. difficile, but there are other diseases that are being studied. 
um, including obesity, inflammatory bowel disease, depression, anxiety, Parkinson's disease, and the like. So the list is very, very long. So for diseases other than CDPCL infection, it should only be done under research settings. It's not clinical practice at this time. So let's talk about CDPCL infection. Let's talk about where we do it uh, in today's world and why is important. And I think the reason the why is important is because for any illness and any medical therapy, especially if it's new and experimental, it's important for us to talk to our um, patients the why. So I alluded to the why a little bit. 100 trillion bacteria, 500 to 2,000 different kinds. When somebody takes an antibiotic, those useful bacteria tend to decrease in numbers and tend to decrease in the variety that you have. Meaning that for some reasons, if you've got a backyard that's full of green grass and you finally get a hole in there where the grass is not growing as well for one reason or the other, maybe you didn't put enough fiber or fertilizer or somebody plucked your grass like an antibiotic did. And Cedipacil is a weed plant that starts growing in your backyard or in your gut, causes diarrhea. Now, the treatments that are used for Cedipacil early on are also antibiotics. The most commonly used treatments are vancomycin or fidaxomycin. Vancomycin is a broad spectrum antibiotic, meaning it's going to kill not only Cedipacil, but it also is going to kill useful bacteria around in the intestines also. Fidaxomycin kills Cedipacil, but does not kill as many useful bacteria as vancomycin does. There's trouble with fidaxomycin, it's way more expensive, so it limits its clinical use at this time. Now, when you use vancomycin for some, let's say if you have 100 people and you give them all vancomycin or fidaxomycin, about 80 of them, they'll get better with no recurrences. The rest 20 would probably get better, but the seal will tend to come back. And the reason it comes back is because vancomycin and fidaxomycin are not as efficacious against the spores of seal. Cedipcil is a spore form, then it forms a vegetative form that makes toxin. So these uh, medicines are not as effective against the spore form. Um, and when you stop the medicines, the spore form tends to grow back. And that's where you start thinking about, okay, what do we do now? So in about 100 people, about 80 of them will not get it back. About 20 of them, it'll come back. It's just like you spray a weedy side in your backyard and it kills good grass around it and does not kill the roots of the weed. So guess what? The weed's, the weed's gonna start growing back. After the first infection, when there's a 20% chance of coming back, for the second infection, there's about a 40% chance it's gonna come back. And after the third infection, guess what? 60% chance, unfortunately, that's gonna come back. And the reason it keeps coming back is because you don't have enough useful or good bacteria to fight against the spores. And that's where replenishing the microbiome or giving somebody useful bacteria, and we can't grow all of those useful bacteria, can't grow that colony in a lab at this time. So it has to come from a healthy, well-screened donor. And guess what the numbers, that's the best kind of lottery you can win. Your chances of C. diff coming back are 60% and they go down to less than 10 to 15% after fecal transplantation. So it's, a, it's been a magical therapy for our patients with CDPCL infection. We've been doing fecal transplants here at our center since 2012. A lot of places have done that subsequently and some places have been doing that for even longer than that. The first reports were in the 1950s, but it's been in mainstream medicine since the early uh, part of last decade. 
What are you guys doing fecal transplants for? Is it, is it, it's C. diff infections. Are you doing inflammatory bowel IBD, anything of that nature? So clinically, we're doing them for people with recurrent C. difficile infection. That's the vast majority of people. Sometimes we do it for refractory C. difficile infection, meaning C. difficile in the ICU, not getting better in the hospital, not getting better. We do every now and then have a research protocol for patients with ulcerative colitis. We recently finished a couple of smaller studies um, of some products that have been developed by industry. So we have some protocols for inflammatory bowel disease also, um, but that's only strictly under research settings. And fecal transplantations for conditions other than cerebral infection, can't overemphasize that further, has to be done only under um, research settings. What have you seen with inflammatory bowel? What what have your observations been from the research? I think the research right now has had mixed results. There have been some clinical trials of fecal transplantation, one from Australia, one uh, uh, from Canada that showed positive results for ulcerative colitis. There has been a negative study of fecal transplantation also. And then more recently, there was an industry-sponsored product that had shown promises in an early phase study, but when they did a placebo-controlled study, they didn't see much of a benefit. I think inflammatory bowel disease in itself is a very heterogeneous disorder. There is ulcerative colitis, there's Crohn's disease, there's something called intramural colitis, there's mild, moderate, severe ulcerative colitis, there's proctitis, there's partial clonic involvement, there's full clonic involvement, there's early stage disease, there's late stage disease, and there's multiple treatments that are out there for inflammatory bowel disease in itself. So trying to figure out which patient is going to benefit from fecal transplantation or a similar therapy in inflammatory bowel disease, we're still trying to learn that. And then more importantly, for chronic diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, obesity, irritable bowel syndrome, fatty liver disease, and the likes, Fecal microbiota transplantation may not be used as standalone therapy. It probably should be used, in my mind, would be as an adjunct therapy. So your usual treatments are there. They may be working suboptimally. Can you do fecal microbiota transplantation to enhance your usual treatments from working? There's actually been precedence in the cancer space. Um, there are some earlier studies that have shown that you can improve the effects of your chemotherapy by replenishing the microbiome in a cancer patient. That's very exciting. Um, I see and, that. It's amazing. That's amazing. Have you, so, uh, you know, you're talking a little bit about obesity and the microbiome, and I'm not sure that people understand because there are some um, gut bacteria that are very protective with, um, with basically metabolic syndrome, obesity, et cetera. And so some people that have higher than normal levels of this tend to be trimmer. They tend not to struggle with obesity. So I'm assuming that's what you're you're talking about when you when you're speaking of about obesity. Is that correct? Right. So there is an altered gut bacterial profile that we see in people who are obese compared to people who are lean. Not just people. You see that in mice too. There was very interesting mouse work that's been done over the years. If you take bacteria from an obese mouse and give that to a lean mouse, that mouse tends to become obese. The other way around which is probably where the holy grail is. Can I take bacteria from a super skinny person and give those bacteria to a person who's obese and see if that obesity improves? I think that's the holy grail. That's what we all want. We want the skinny pill. I want the skinny pill. You want the skinny pill. Everybody wants the skinny pill. Yeah, why not? Um, you want to become healthier. Mm-hmm. I think the, um, the research is not quite there as yet. To give you an example, 
there was a study that was presented at one of our national meetings, I believe in 2019, and they did a clinical trial uh, where they took a bacterial product or a capsule-based fecal transplantation or capsule-based microbiome therapy from a super skinny person who could eat a high calorie diet and still not gain weight and use those capsules to do microbiome-based therapy or fecal transplant-like therapy in people who were obese and overweight. What they did notice at the, at the end of their follow-up period was that the people who got those bacteria did have a graft, meaning those bacteria started living in those people, but they didn't lose a whole lot of weight. Hmm. Um, the drawback of that study, in my opinion, was that they were not very high on the diet and lifestyle uh, interventions that come that would come with it. And I think it probably is an adjunct. It's, it would have in the next study, if I were to do a study with that, I would say you do everything, you exercise, you change your diet, you also then do a microbiome-based therapy on top of that. We've done, we've seen studies, studies that if you do um, a bariatric surgery on somebody to lose weight, and the, as that person's losing weight, their bacteria also changes. Now, when you lose weight, your bacteria changes, or your bacteria is changing, that's making you lose weight, or is it both? And I think it's both of a positive cycle that you can uh, you can establish where if you start losing weight you start getting the better mix of bacteria and that better mix of bacteria makes you lose weight too i joke around with some of my friends this is completely joking around say when you go to a buffet table and you start looking at the uh, cookies that are out there and the pasta um, and the salad maybe it's your gut bacteria telling your brain that i crave for the salad today rather than the cookie or if i crave for the cookie today maybe it's your gut bacteria that are trying to tell you that i think there's some research that's out there but right now we're joking about it maybe in a few years we'll know that yeah what you're craving for is your gut bacteria telling your brain or signaling your brain what do you want to eat today exactly yeah what are you hungry for <laughs> the second brain i guess is how they they have generally put it is the second brain so um, you mentioned a DIY book to do your own fecal transplants. What is the danger of doing this and what are the concerns and what have you seen that, um, that this should be avoided? If there is one thing today that we can let our, all our listeners know, please do not do this yourself. Please do not buy that DIY book. It is extremely, extremely, extremely critical that this gets done under the guidance of a provider who has experience with this. If I choose somebody who has to be a donor for fecal microbiota transplantation, they fill up a long, long questionnaire asking us, us asking them about all sorts of health problems that they may have had in the past. Everybody and anybody who may have had any kind of disease like irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, um, anxiety, depression, they tend to be excluded from being a stool transplant donor. Then the next step is to make sure they don't have any infectious diseases. So we check them for HIV, acute and chronic hepatitis, syphilis, about 25 to 30 different kinds of infections in their stool. Make sure they're not carrying COVID-19 uh, into his world. And this is evolving over the years. A couple of years ago, we saw a donor who was healthy otherwise was unfortunately carrying a multi-drug resistant E. coli or a superbug, which infected a couple of recipients and one person died as a result of fecal transplantation. A study done out of Boston demonstrated that of all comers who applied to be fecal transplant donors in a large stool bank out of uh, Massachusetts, 
only 2.5% were eligible to be stool donors. So the joke there was, it's easier to get into Harvard and Boston than to get into the stool bank to be a stool donor. <laughs> funny, but it's true. So most people, if they are trying to find a donor on themselves, they may not be able to find the donor uh, who is healthy otherwise. And they put themselves at a risk of getting an adverse event, transmitting a chronic disease, transmitting an acute infection. And then more importantly, you want to make sure that the stool that you're processing is being processed in an anaerobic facility, is being processed cleanly, and then it should not be given to somebody without the direction of a healthcare provider. In our practice, we do a lot of them by colonoscopies. Don't do a colonoscopy on yourself at home. Some people are, <laughs> some people are doing enemas. It's not the right thing to do because we've seen in our practice and others have seen also some a lot of people who are trying to do fecal transplants on themselves at home. They're not doing that for seed if they're trying to get rid of some other health condition that may have. We don't know if it works for the health conditions. We've seen some people who've tried to do this on their own and then develop another new chronic condition, which you then go to your doctor and say, hey, I did a fecal transplant on myself and I developed this. Can you help me reverse this? we may not be able to reverse it for you. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Maybe something, maybe something that gets that happened. And then the last thing you want is to get an infection from somebody and succumb to it. Get mm -hmm. COVID-19. COVID is a bug that's in people's tools. There is no stool test for COVID that's very readily available or widely accepted at this time. So it needs to definitely be done under the guidance of a provider. And for, fe for fecal transplantations or FMTs for C. difficile infection, there are a lot of providers who do that. There's a lot of research that's happening. And if you're someone who's looking for a research protocol or is looking to, for a microbiome-based therapy for a disease state that is not being clinically done, there are clinical trials available. Go to, to clinicaltrials.gov, search.gov, search for fecal microbiota transplantation in a particular condition. You may find a study that, uh, that may help you out, or you may find a different microbiome-based study, but please, please, please do not do this to yourself. I'll give you my example. If I develop recurrent C. difficile infection, I do fecal transplants on others. I would not do one on myself without talking to my doctor and having my doctor direct it for me. Mm -hmm. And I would mm -hmm. never do it for myself for a condition other than C. difficile infection. Mm -hmm. He who has himself for a doctor has a fool for a doctor, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, is there anything that we didn't touch on today? I mean, I could go on about IBD, but I'm going to just keep it with C. diff and fecal transplants because I think that that's just an amazing uh, podcast episode. I think the one thing that I would say is that for people, keep an eye on what's happening with the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome is making headlines on major newspapers several times a year. Um, there is more and more science that's, that's happening. Microbiome therapeutics in one form or the other is going to direct the future of medicine. We're not there as yet, but we will be there in the future. For a lot of diseases other than C. difficile infection, it's going to be critical to identify the correct donor. It's going to be critical to identify the correct patient and it's going to benefit. It's going to be critical to identify the disease state that's going to benefit for. It's going to be crit critical to identify what therapies are you using in addition to the microbiome-based therapies. And I think the field's going to move very quickly to become donor independent. Can you have defined microbial consortia 
that are grown in a lab and that can be used to alleviate disease. We're in the infancy of that at this time for CDFCL. So for CDFCL, we know FMTs work. There's been phase three clinical trials. There are now products that have completed phase three clinical trials. One from Ceres Therapeutics, one from Ferring Pharmaceuticals or Rebiotics that have completed phase three trials. Everybody knows what phase three trials are now. That means they will be coming to market soon with FDA approval in the next year or two or something like that. Com contrast that to products that have been grown in a lab for CDFCL infection. One has completed a phase one trial. One has, is currently in a phase two trial. So that's the infancy for CDFCL, but the field will eventually hopefully move if some of those things work, that we can grow things in a lab to treat CDFCL infection, meaning you know what's in every capsule that giving somebody. And then I think once we learn from CDFCL, then we'll be learning for what we call as defined microbial consortia for other diseases as an adjunct to your usual therapies. We're not there as yet, but I promise we will be there soon, shortly, in a few years. <laughs> Coming soon, right? Coming, Coming soon. soon. Well, this has been an absolute like pleasure. It's just it's just so interesting to learn about this and and to you know because this is an episode that hasn't been done on the podcast. And we talked about that before you came online. So thank you for just imparting knowledge and, and kind of setting us straight on the whole fecal transplant piece in, in C. diff infections, which I think it's very important to cover. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Um, people can find me on Twitter. Um, I have a professional profile on Twitter. Um, people, if they want to be seen as a patient at some point of time, they can reach out to us through the Mayo Clinic website. They can reach out to us through our appointment office. We're always happy to see patients with CDFCL infection, always happy to interact with everybody. Oh. Dr. Bata, I also have to compliment you and you. We see a lot of information in the GI and the gut microbiome space that may not be completely accurate. I have to compliment on the uh, podcast that you have to provide our patients with accurate health information. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. That means a lot. We work really hard and I read PubMed on Friday nights. Oh, wow. <laughs> really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank it was a pleasure. So I cannot wait until the microbiome. You have all the research with that and we're in a different place with fecal transplants. We'll have you back on here to talk about the research. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for listening to the Gut Health Reset Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review so more people can hear about the podcast. And hey, take a screenshot of this episode and tag Dr. Anne-Marie on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. And for more resources, just visit DrAnneMarieBarter.com.